The great silent majority is rising like never before. And under our leadership, the forgotten man and woman will be forgotten no longer. You're going to be forgotten no longer. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, that lie and steal and cheat on elections and will do anything possible. They'll do anything, whether legally or illegally, to destroy America and to destroy the American dream. Trump 2.0 would have way fewer constraints than Trump 1.0 did. You know, this is scary stuff. I mean, he's floated the idea of executing America's top general in one of his posts, dictator for a day, you, you, you name it. It's just a question of whether voters turn over power to someone who's quite clearly a very dangerous individual. I mean, this stuff is, is straight out of history. Political violence is becoming, I think, a feature of American politics. And I think that it is highly likely that if Trump loses, there will be significant political violence. Probably, in my view, probably worse than January 6th. All this stuff is the breakdown of reality. And once you don't have a shared sense of reality, democracy falls apart. You would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Except Look, what? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill. That's drill, not a, that's, drill. That's not, oh, no. that's not retribution. I got I'm going to be... I love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. This is not a drill. Hello and welcome to This Is Not A Drill. I'm Gavin Esler. Back in 1920, the American humorist H.L. Mencken forecast that as American democracy is perfected, the office of president represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. On some great and glorious day, the plain folks of the land will reach their heart's desire at last, and the White House will be adorned by a downright moron. Now, whether Mencken's prophecy truly represents the inner soul of the American people in November 2024 is debatable. The White House has already been adorned by Donald Trump once after the 2016 presidential election. This year, it appears the United States is again split down the middle between those who wish for the second coming of Trump and those who foresee a disaster for the United States, for democracy and for the world. To take us through whether Trump's words, including his extraordinary promise to be a dictator, but only for a day, will be borne out by reality, I'm joined by Brian Klass. Brian is an American political scientist and associate professor at University College London, a contributing writer at The Atlantic and author of, among other things, How to Rig an Election and, coming next month, Fluke, Chance, Chaos and Why Everything We Do Matters. Brian? Welcome. And uh, we'll get to what Trump might do as president in a moment. But can we talk a bit about his words? Because the phrase about being a dictator, but only for a day, I mean, you could say that's a joke, but do people laugh at this or not? I mean, this is the thing with Trump is that he says stuff where he tries to have plausible deniability, right? So he he, he says something and it says, oh, it was just a joke, right? But, you know, the last 
eight years have not been a joke. I mean, that's that's the reality of it is that he's been borrowing the rhetoric of dictators uh, repeatedly. One of the things that hasn't cut through in the international press, but is really grotesque, is his rhetoric around how immigrants are poisoning the blood of the American nation. I mean, this stuff is is straight out of history, right? And and I think that there's a there's a worry among lots of people, including myself, that because it has become so routine for him to say these extremely outlandish things, people are just tuning them out, and they're and and it's actually substantially crazier than the stuff that he was saying when he was president. But they're just not seeing it because now it's on Truth Social instead of on the nightly news or on Twitter. Well, maybe we should look at it as almost a bit of literary criticism here and just go through some of these phrases, because uh, the one that really struck me was Trump says he will, and I'm quoting here, root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections. I mean, every academic I know doesn't like making parallels with the 1930s and Hitler, but this is this is the kind of rhetoric that we heard at that period. Yeah, and you know, I think there was, the, the first time this happened, you could maybe say, oh, there's a coincidence that Trump is echoing these phrases. I mean, at some point you have to say this is, this is deliberate, right? I mean, using words like vermin, um, painting his enemies as secret communists and so on. I mean, it's, it's bizarre in how much it echoes history. I think the really scary thing about this is that those comments did not make the news. And I, I mean that quite literally. The Media Matters for America uh, did an analysis and they compared Hillary Clinton calling some Trump supporters, right? a small number of Trump supporters, she said, in the 2016 race, she said were deplorables, right? People who had deplorable views. That statement that she made got 18 times more press coverage than Trump saying that he would root out the vermin who oppose him. I mean, you know, this is scary stuff. And, and I think it's stuff where... He routinely says it. I mean, he's floated the idea of executing America's top general in one of his posts. I mean, dictator for a day, you, you name it. I mean, this is stuff where it, there's no secret. And I think the, the problem is that nobody can really pretend that they didn't know what was going on come November because it's been open and he's not hiding what he intends to do. It's just a question of whether voters turn over power to someone who's quite clearly a very dangerous individual. Can we go into a little bit about why he seems to get away with that then? I mean, is it that sections of the media just go, we should ignore it because it's so horrible? Or is it that they go, oh, it's just Donald Trump. You know what he's like. He's, he'll say anything. He's like a kind of stand-up comedian. He can he can be really rude, but you kind of let him get... I mean, what what is going on here? Because there's 350 million people who then, in, in your analysis, must be being, many of them, under-informed and others being energized by this kind of stuff. Yeah, so you have two things happening at once. I, I wrote about this dynamic in this piece for my newsletter called The Case for Amplifying Trump's Insanity. And it's about how people are not finding out about these things, right? And so there's two things that are happening at the same time. On the one hand, you have the ordinary voter. These are not the people who are like the Trump cult members. They might vote for Trump, but they're not like, you know, wearing the MAGA hats and painting their truck with like a bald eagle with Trump riding it and all this stuff, right? They're like just like normal voters. And those people are not seeing this rhetoric, right? And that's a problem because they're persuadable. Some of them are persuadable, maybe a small number, but, but an, enough to potentially sway an election. The other group are the people who are the diehards. And they're getting unfiltered Trump on Truth Social, which most journalists and, and uh, you know, politicos and so on don't really read because it's basically just Trump's social media site. It's no one, no one else. Everyone else is on Twitter or Blue Sky or whatever it is, you know, threads, all these other sites that are more mainstream. So you have like a radicalization of the people who already like Trump 
going on at the same time that the really vile rhetoric that should turn people off who are persuadable is not cutting through. And it's the worst of both worlds, right? Because you basically have this sort of forgetfulness among ordinary voters where they, ah, he wasn't so bad, right? And this has happened with things like January 6th, where they've, a lot of voters now say, like, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was a violent attack on the Capitol to try to overturn an election. And like the majority of Republicans think it was not a big deal now. And and it's just, you know, there's a thing where um, Trump said in 2016, he had this line where he said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. I I actually think this is quite literally true. I mean, I, I, I like it boggles my mind to believe this, but like, I don't think there is anything he could do. I think he could literally murder someone and a significant chunk of the base would either say it was fake news or that the Democrats are worse. Uh, it, it's a toxin in American politics. It's unbelievable the things that he can get away with. And there's no rational explanation for it. It is a, a, a very, very devoted disciple set that are much more tied to a religious movement than they are to a, a standard policy-based um, political program. That's, that has very interesting consequences for the American media then, because uh, I remember following the Washington Post coverage of Trump for years, and they called him out repeatedly. And they said, I think at the end, he told some 30,000 lies, falsehoods, untruths, whatever you want to call them, in his presidency. So why doesn't that stick? Or does it stick in the sense that, well, if if he told 30,000 lies in his presidency, you know, in a working day, that could be 40 or 50 lies, which most of us can't even cope with. So does this inoculate him against the fact that he's talking about poison the mental institutions and prisons all over the world, immigrants, they poison the blood of the country, they just shrug? Yeah. So there's some of it is that the, the, the sort of mainstream news isn't covering this as much. I mean, you know, Trump called at one point to shoot shoplifters on site, right? Like extrajudicial killings and like this was not covered. But I think that there's a bigger problem, which is the sort of asymmetry of American news in a way that is totally alien to European and British listeners, which is to say, I mean, just as a thought experiment, right? Go to foxnews.com and then go to nytimes.com. You'll find a totally different world. And if you actually tune into Fox News, which it's a, it's a useful way of understanding America, it is so different from anything that people consume. I mean, GB News looks very, very tame <laughs> compared to Fox News's, uh, you know, sort of nightly rants about how Joe Biden's a socialist who's you know, satanic and all this type of stuff. Just crazy rhetoric that would not be seen on a mainstream outlet in, in the UK. So, you know, I think there's this aspect where, you know, some of it is a is a failure to persistently cover these big things, because you're right, the Washington Post did cover it during his presidency. But a lot of the time now, his more outlandish speeches don't get don't get the press. Um, but it is something where, you know, most of the people who are going to vote for him, they live in a funhouse mirror version of reality, you know, where, where Joe Biden is the is the corrupt one who should be indicted for all sorts of felonies. And he's the one who tried to destroy democracy. Because in their funhouse worldview, he stole the election, right? So January 6th is therefore justified in their, in their minds because the election, which was not stolen, by the way, is something that they believe was. All this stuff is the breakdown of reality. And once you don't have a shared sense of reality, democracy falls apart because that's basically what democracy requires is people to agree that problems exist so they can compromise and solve them. Well, uh, let, let me put to you... Uh... And for our listeners, a couple of quotes from Trump on exactly this point, because he said in New Hampshire recently of Biden and the Democrats, quote, they are willing to violate the U.S. Constitution at levels never seen before in order to win, which is, of course, 
what everybody knows Trump did in t- uh, after the 2016 election. He then said, Joe Biden is a threat to democracy. He is a threat. And the words Biden attacks democracy are being projected on the screens at Trump rallies. Now, you know, psychologists know what projection is. It's to say that someone, your faults are projected on someone else and you blame them for it. This is a classic example, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and and the lies are important, right? Because they do produce, I mean, I think these are genuine feelings among Trump voters that they're the ones defending democracy. I don't think that they're like making this up or projecting it. It's just part of a delusional worldview. So something like a quarter, there's a poll that came out last week where about a quarter of Americans, a significant chunk of Republicans, believe that January 6th was set up by the FBI to make Trump look bad, right? Like they, they believe this was a false flag attack and they don't believe the people who were involved were actual Trump supporters. So if you if you believe that lie and that conspiracy theory, suddenly it starts to, you know, the, the, the pieces start to fall into place where, oh, we're the ones who are actually standing up against the deep state. But you have to believe a set of lies which Trump routinely parrots, which, you know, normal people who are not in the Trump cult never hear this stuff, never understand the worldview that's being projected and don't therefore understand it. But, you know, what he's talking about, that's, and this is the other thing that's hard to explain to people, and it's part of the reason why he gets away with it, is what he's talking about with, with Biden attacking democracy is some of the measures that have been attempted by various secretaries of state in, in certain states, and most notably Colorado, to remove Trump from the ballot from uh, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which basically bars people who have engaged in insurrection from running for office in the future. And this is being adjudicated by the courts. It's about to go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will decide. That is literally what democracy is, right? It's it's something where a constitutional uh, you know, amendment is produced. You then have an interpretation of it. It's tested in the courts and the courts decide that's what the system is. He says it's undemocratic because it's trying to bar the people from having a choice. So you can see the warped logic. It's wrong, but you can see the warped logic and how some people with a simplistic understanding of democratic law and so on uh, would be seduced by it. So I, I mean, I just despair for it though. It's, you know, as just as an individual, right? Like not even as a political scientist, I just, I, I look at this stuff and I'm just like, the country is just so broken. Like, you know, the, I, I often have, have observed that the, um, you know, the UK has some really big economic problems, but compared to the US culturally and politically, it is a much, much more stable country than the United States is at the moment. And the inverse is true in the US. Its economy is thriving. The country's broken. Let me say, I want to get on to how words could become reality if Trump uh, wins and is inaugurated in a year's time. But um, your country has been broken before, obviously, the Civil War, and actually, you could say in the 1770s as well, uh, 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 and has always really had two kind of views of America, the Enlightenment view, and then a more, uh, you know, the, the idea of manifest destiny and the Pilgrim Fathers and slightly different view. So there's nothing new on that. And maybe that needs to be reflected in any democracy. Uh, and Trump is attempting to do that in this way that um, many people find offensive. Yeah, you know, I think there's, on, on the right wing, there's a talk now of basically dividing the US, which which is it's totally nonsensical. But this has become a talking point for many of the Trump acolytes that, you know, disunion is eventually inevitable. Um, it's, it's totally impractical because basically the geography, political geography of the United States is divided into three groups, right? There's the cities, which are basically all Democrats. There's the rural areas, which are all Republicans. And then there's the suburbs, which basically swing the elections. So it's not like you can just parcel out states, right? <laughs> like this is like each, like in Texas, the cities are super democratic, right? So, uh, but but what I do worry about, and, and this is what I think your, um, your question is, is astutely alluding to, is that 
Political violence is becoming, I think, a feature of American politics. And I think that it is highly likely that if Trump loses, there will be significant political violence. Probably, in my view, probably worse than January 6th. Um, I don't think that elections will happen in the United States without violence happening in the foreseeable future. And that's just, I mean, that's a terrible indictment of the democratic system, right? I mean, I I wrote a piece uh, for The Atlantic a couple months ago where I was trying to figure out, you know, why haven't more politicians been assassinated given the the extremely vile rhetoric? And, and my conclusion as someone who studies political violence is literally luck. I, I think that that's it. I, I think that every single ingredient that exists for political violence in any other country in the world is on steroids in the United States. I mean, it's uh, it, it, it's incredibly, incredibly potent. The vile rhetoric, the amount of guns, the extremism, the conspiracism, all these things. I mean, that's the state of, of a broken democracy. And I think that's the stuff where we just have to accept that this is a, a seriously, seriously dysfunctional country at the moment. And it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to get fixed in the 2024 election. It's going to persist. We got a lot of work to do. You know, when they let, I think the real number is 15, 16 million people into our country. When they do that, we got a lot of work to do. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world. They're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world. They're pouring into our country. Nobody's even looking at them. They just come in. On my first day back in the White House, I will terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration, stop the invasion of our southern border, and begin the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. Let's turn to the reality then. If you believe in the deep state, then you would want Donald Trump to win and dismantle the deep state. And he said essentially he will do that. So what what, what sort of things might he do? What sort of things has he said he, w- he will do when elected? So he's talked a lot about consolidating power. And one of the ways he wants to do that is basically by firing civil servants who are nonpartisan. So there, there's this whole discourse in the Trumpian world which I think a lot of people don't understand because they think, oh, we already had him as president. It will just be a repeat of that. The first time around, everyone was surprised, including Trump, everyone was surprised that he won. So they didn't have systematic plans, right? And they were actually quite bad at implementing policy early on in his term. I mean, famously, they didn't build the wall and they didn't pass the healthcare bill they planned to do. And, you know, they couldn't pass an infrastructure bill and so on. So This time around, the intelligentsia in the Republican Party is actually making much more sophisticated plans of how to deal with the Trump 2.0. And the scary stuff they're talking about is basically purging civil servants and replacing them with partisan Trump acolytes. So, you know, you think about the ways that democracy dies in the 21st century. I mean, most people think about the death of democracy as, you know, tanks in the street, revolution, this sort of stuff. 21st century democracies die differently. You know, they die with rule of law becoming politicized. They die with bureaucracies being hollowed out. They die with um, the executive basically aggregating power in new and new and unfortunate ways. 
and that's the playbook. So, you know, I think Trump has also, he, yesterday or two days ago, he also spe- said specifically on social media that he would indict Joe Biden for no specified crime. So you're talking about a president who's vowing to imprison his opponent for not committing a crime, which is not democracy, right? So, I mean, these are, there, there's a lot of things he can do. And unfortunately, the constraints of the U.S., you know, they're real. They Checks and balances exist. But if Congress stops upholding them, if the civil servants are replaced, I mean, you know, the judges have been appointed by Trump in the Supreme Court. You start to have fewer and fewer constraints that actually matter. Yeah, I was going to pick up on the constraints because the checks and balances are still there, as you as you say. But they, in the Supreme Court case, I think Trump has appointed three of the nine uh, Supreme Court uh, justices. Uh, what about Congress, though? Because Congress could stop, presumably could stop him diminishing the role in NATO, uh, even as commander in chief. He cannot do everything, can he, in terms of funding the military, funding Ukraine? Yeah. So what he can't do is basically, I mean, Congress still has the power of the purse, although the executive has a lot of leeway in how to allocate budgets. And what Trump has the most, would have the most power on is, is actually foreign policy, because the commander in chief is, is far less constrained than the domestic president, right? And, and this is, you know, it's an outgrowth of the Cold War and the belief that, you know, the US president needs to respond in an instant to the threat of a Soviet nuclear attack. So the, the power of the presidency on paper is supposed to be constrained by Congress a lot more. But in practice, for foreign policy stuff, airstrikes, deploying the military, that, there's almost no check on Trump, to be honest, if he were to win a second term. Same is true for Biden right now. You know, I think I would suspect on day one, uh, he would reverse the US's Ukraine policy. I think that he would probably stop funding and providing weapons to Ukraine. I would expect there would be a push to withdraw from NATO, which is the linchpin of global security. Um, whether Congress would actually grow, grow a backbone or not, I don't know. But the the case studies of the Republican Party have been, you know, I, I use this phrase of, um, uh, political remoras. Remoras are these fish that basically feed on on bigger sharks and you know effectively eat their parasites. A lot of the members of Congress who are trying to most uh, coddle up to Trump are behaving this way. And 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 if anyone's interested in this, the the number one case study of this is a woman named Elise Stefanik, who is uh, a member of Congress from New York, and she positioned herself in the pre-Trump years as this sort of moderate really smart intellectual Republican, right? Very much of the Paul Ryan, the former Speaker of the House mentality and so on. Trump rose and it's been this amazing transformation such that in the past few days, she said that she might not vote to certify the 2024 election if Trump loses. I mean, you know, that in a nutshell is the problem is that the the constraints require people to act. I mean, the checks and balances are not magical. It's not like the Constitution will attack Trump. I mean, it's like, you know, you actually need members of Congress to do the right thing. And a lot of them the ones who would stand up to him, they have either been uh, defeated in primaries by diehard pro-Trump Republicans, or they've retired because they understand there's no place in the party for them. So, you know, Trump 2.0 would have way fewer constraints than Trump 1.0 did um, from 2017 to 2021. What would stop him then? Because everybody from the outside looking at the American system, uh, it looks like a kind of strange system because of the Electoral College. You've got places like Wyoming who've got a, a say in it, places like Washington, D.C., which don't. Uh, I mean, it, it's a very odd system. And all we know from the outside is actually very few voters make a difference in very few states. And that's still true, isn't it? It is. And, you know, you, we can we can predict which states there are. There are. It's probably going to be six or seven states that determine the election. Uh, it's It's very similar ones to the 2020 election, most likely. I mean, my 
optimism for Trump losing is basically born out of, there's two things. One is that as soon as it becomes a binary choice between Biden and Trump, the approval ratings for Biden, which are bad, become significantly less important. Because if you just ask someone, do you like Biden, yes or no? That's a very different question from, would you rather have Biden or Trump in power? Right. And that's going to be a clarifying question, I think, as the stretch, you know, proceeds into the into the election. The second thing that I think can persuade some people in those key states is the indictments. There's 91 felony indictments that Trump is facing across several different court cases. And, you know, if he actually gets convicted, uh, I mean, he could get sent to prison before the election. It's not impossible. But if he gets convicted of federal crimes, you know, I, I have to hope that there's like three or 4% of Americans who would have voted for Trump, but might think maybe we should not have a guy who's headed to prison be our president, right? And that three or 4% would be enough to swing the election. I don't think it will make a difference for the 35 to 40% of his diehards. I think they'll think that they have to back him even more because he's now a victim of what they see as politically motivated charges, which they're not. I mean, the evidence is unbelievably overwhelming in all of these cases. But I think that's the that's the sort of optimism, is that when you look at a snapshot of the election right now, it looks like a toss-up or that even Trump is ahead. But you know, these these cases are going to percolate through the criminal justice system in, in the election year. Some of them might actually bite and they might actually um, cause his downfall. Could we end with a couple of nerdish questions or of off the usual agenda questions. One is about sophology and and about who says what to opinion posters. I mean, I have seen some studies in the United States which suggest that younger voters are not really being reflected in opinion polls because, frankly, they don't want to answer phones to people that telephone calls from people they haven't heard of. Is that true? In other words, could there be a core of anti-Trump voters among young people who are not reflected in the polls? Yeah. So there's two things that are problematic with the polls right now. One is that the electorate is shifting, right? The kinds of people who will vote in a Trump-Biden election are different from, uh, from, from the past. So the pollsters, you know, pre-2020 and so on, data isn't always a perfect fit. The, the thing that you're talking about is political scientists call this and pollsters call this non-response bias. What I will say is that when you look at the numbers, I, you know, I was looking at a New York Times poll. I teach a methodology class at UCL and I was showing my students, there's a New York Times poll. 560 respondents to the poll, 40,000 phone calls, right? I mean, the, the the level of response is so low. So this is the kind of thing where there's a big question mark over the polling uh, heading into the election. And I think it is worth questioning. And of course, however, if they don't answer their phone, they might not want to vote anyway, because a third of Americans don't like a third of British people. And the, the, the final question, which I say very tentatively, but it just shows how weird this election is, is that there? there's a lot in social media from people, beginning with a, a former Republican congressman, saying that the former president smells bad. Now, I have covered many election campaigns. I, What on earth is going on there? Is it just trivial or is it a desperation? It might even be true for all I know. I have no idea. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know the origin story of this, but what I think it is, uh, is bait, basically, for Trump. And the reason I say that is because one of the things that there, there's a group called the Lincoln Project, which has a lot of people from the, you know, basically Bush era Republicans involved with it. And what they have figured out is that getting Trump annoyed uh, and really defensive actually causes him to lash out in ways that hurt him politically. So they did things like they ran ads in, in Washington, D.C., um, which made absolutely no sense, right? D.C. is like 90 plus percent Democratic. They're not trying to persuade anyone. They were just trying to goad Trump. 
And this might be some of that, right? And it is it is the one also, you know, potential benefit for the Democrats going into this race is like, Trump is his own worst enemy. He is such a narcissist. He cannot avoid punching back against, you know, stupid, trivial attacks like this. But I think it is to throw him off balance. I don't think there's that many persuadable voters who are out there and saying, well, if he smells bad, then I must vote for Joe Biden. I think it's more targeting Trump than anything. But it is uh, indicative of what will be a very, very ugly campaign uh, going down the stretch. Brian, we'll leave it there. I hope we can have this conversation again through the year and see how it happens and what actually turns out. Because by January 2025, Donald Trump could be in the White House he could be in the courthouse, and he could actually be in the jailhouse. Happy New Year. This is not a drill. I'm Gavin Esler. This egregious abuse of the law is going to produce a backlash, the likes of which nobody has ever seen before. This is Not A Drill, was written and presented by Gavin Esler and produced by me, Robin Lieber. Our music's by Paul Hartnell, art by Jim Parrott, and social media by Jess Harvey. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, executive producer Martin Boytosh, and This Is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production. <laughs>